0: I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is the very first episode of Lit Century, our new podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today's year is 1936, and our book is Nightwood by Juna Barnes. We're going to take a couple of episodes with it and talk about it from several different angles. Next episode, we'll be talking about Barnes' life and her place in modernism and her social set and kind of the context in which this book was written. Uh, artistically and historically. But today, we're going to be talking about queerness and eugenics and pretty much inevitably, uh, fascism is going to come up um, when you're talking about 1936. So that is going to be part of it. Uh, But first, Sandy is going to give us a summary of the book. So if any of you listeners have not read it and don't want to, but want to fake having read it, um, you'll be more convincing. So tell us, what's Nightwood about?
1: is a short, uncategorizable novel, a sort of bijou, modernist masterpiece. And it's mostly made up of conversations and anecdotes, witticisms, aphorisms, and just, like, long, completely unjustified descriptions of things. So, And it's all kind of centered around not exactly a plot, but a breakup. It's like a breakup song of a novel. And the breakup we're talking about is between Nora Flood, who's really Juno Barnes' stand-in, and Robin Vogt, who's this wild, drunken femme fatale of a woman, who's described in, in terms of, like, sometimes she's vegetable, sometimes she's animal. She's only partly human. And um, the, But the person who's most important in Central and who does most of the talking is the Dr. Matthew O'Connor, who's like, a rogue gynecologist, as he's described. And he's also really, or she's really, the first trans woman in literature, the pronoun he is used throughout the novel. But... What do you expect? It's 1936. So, um, so anyway, but it's really all about the language. So I, I just want to give you one sentence from when we first meet Robin Vogt to give you a taste for what you're in for with this. The perfume that her body exhaled was of the quality of that earth flesh, fungi, which smells of captured dampness, and yet it's so dry, overcast with the odor of oil of amber, which is an inner malady of the sea making her seem as if she had invaded a sleep, incautious and entire. So that's when we first meet Robin Vogt, the love interest of the novel, when she is passed out drunk in a hotel room.
0: So one thing that really surprised me about this book, going into it, I expected uh, this famous classic of lesbianism and uh, women loving women. And uh, it really doesn't start with Uh, with that at all. It starts with this very bleak portrait of heterosexuality, where it's this character Felix, it's his birth. And so it's the context of his birth. It's his parents' relationship where the father is Jewish, but is pretending to be a baron. And he has uh, romanced his wife Hedwig um, under these false pretenses, sort of, but they're both just obsessed with their a lineage. Their aristocratic, great European past. Um, they're bored with each other. They're lying to each other, and they have a baby and die promptly. And um, and that's that's what Felix is born to. That's his heritage. And he grows up heterosexual, and um, is just looking for a woman to um, to marry, so that he can have a child who will stand beside him and they can admire their ancestry together, like the, the great past. Um, as he's looking at, um, at the world, he's having all of these conversations about kind of like what kind of person everyone is based on their ethnicity or their religion, um, which is incredibly tiresome, um, it's even difficult to sort of get through this entire chapter as a reader.
1: yeah, and I think okay, so I th- we'll talk more about the character of Felix later. I think he's really interesting because he's he's supposed to be Jewish, but he's really just this strange deracinated figure. I, he's more of a blank slate I think than than certainly Robin or any other character. But I think like just to come at this from a, a strange point of view, it occurred to me, reading about the book, reading around the book, that it was actually written at a point when Juna Barnes is childless and in her late 30s. And there's a lot in the book which is about the childlessness of being gay, which it's sort of like a, an undercurrent in the book. So it's interesting that we come into the book from this point, you know, as you're, like you're saying, is like a really bleak view of heterosexuality as a reproductive chore that is accomplished by people who are completely deluded about the importance of their own genetic material. Um, but you get these sort of, like, wistful gay voices talking about childbearing, like the doctor, who's the, the probably the most important character in the book, saying, God, I never asked better than to boil some good man's potatoes and toss up a child for him every nine months by the calendar. Um, <laughs> and then there's... There's this commentary on the relationship between Robin and Nora from Nora when a woman gives a doll to a woman it's the life they cannot have it's their child sacred and profane sometimes if Robin got tight by evening I would find her standing in the middle of the room in boys' clothes rocking from foot to foot holding the doll she had given us our child high above her head so this is this kind of strays out but there's so much despair in the book but this Kind of mirrored despair between the heterosexual who is creating children who he intends to be—I I don't I, like like some sort of eugenic project—and yet the child who's born to him, in fact, has some kind of indeterminate disability um, and is sort of half saint, half idiot, and um, and then the gay people who are childless and bleak and living an eternal night
0: yeah so one thing that um that I was thinking about the doll was actually about um isn't there a there's a teddy bear in uh Brideshead Revisited um that's also sort of part of the charm of a gay relationship between two men wow <laughs> um, and I was wondering like and that book also is is kind of from the same era. And I was wondering how much is this a thing? Like this might be more oh, of a thing. Of what? I have
1: such a story to tell you about this. Can you I, tell I think me on the record? I will. I'll tell you of course. No, no, this is this is <laughs> this isn't my personal story. <laughs> it's a story from the the circle around um Natalie Barney who who was the like the I guess the lesbian godfather of Paris at this time, whose um, whose salon Juno Barnes went to, and there's this character, Joe Carstairs, who is just an amazing woman who's like a boat racer heiress, and you know had affairs with like Marlena Dietrich and Tallulah Bankhead and all of these, you know, just this insane life, and she eventually like bought herself a private island, and. Turned it into a sort of a, a lesbian paradise. Oh. But anyway, she notoriously had a doll, which she took everywhere with her, called Lord Todd Wadley, who was her <laughs> alter ego. And she would talk to the doll and she, like tell stories about the doll's life and make everybody treat the doll with respect and talk to the doll, too. So I think That's this doll comes from her. It's so crazy. So I actually
0: think maybe we all want to have dolls. And maybe it's just Mm. like the way that clowns and spiders and dolls, like there was an 80s horror movie about all of those (laughs) things that people watched when they were too young. And so like the true joy of circuses and dolls and spiders, like I bet all of those things show up in Nightwood. Definitely circuses and dolls.
1: I feel like people used to be much scarier and more in touch with their scariness and much more comfortable with it. Now we, we don't like that and we want to not be scary, but we are actually still scary. Um, I think that's like a, <laughs> a <really laughs> s- solid theory.
0: And I think that Juna Barnes would sign off on it because I think that one of the things that uh, that I kept thinking about was the George Chauncey book, uh, Gay New York. And mm. um, that's from 1995. So it was before, uh, I'd say like before the the long tail of the like mid-century fascist homophobia was over where mm-hmm. just like even writing a scholarly book about homosexuality was um, like possibly career ending um, and uh, the point that he's making in that book is that that there was already this whole queer world there are all the concepts that we now think of as sort of modern, like the difference between being trans and being cross dresser being bi being uh gay whatever uh situationally gay gay as an identity like all of these things were already in the world unknown the only thing that um it, it was just like the second world and a second uh set of meanings to words and a second sort of uh mm-hmm. way a hierarchy like the the w- the um wasn't the same as sort of the daytime world you know the way that juna barnes describes right, it, sort of like yeah. the nighttime world and the daytime world um and th- the the big difference between what existed then was sort of like if you if you bring it out in public too much um then you know you might be punished like oscar wilde um, but as long as you sort of keep everything in the nighttime world uh, nobody really nobody's trying to to stop that until mm-hmm. mid-century fascism and then they absolutely were trying to stop that and that was like okay men can no longer even have close friends lest one of them touch the other one's hand and feel a thrill you know yeah um, like that's actually of homophobia
1: um, yeah there's oh sorry i'm 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 trying to interrupt you now. Oh, um,
0: well, I, I want to make one more point. Oh, and, and that okay. is that Now it seems okay. like the thing to say in order to counteract homophobia is that there's no important difference between being straight and being gay. And that gay rights right. would look like making gay life more like straight life. Whereas you can definitely see that Juna Barnes would not see it that way. <laughs> that like, is so nobody interesting. Nobody would want to yeah. be more like
1: straight Okay that was that was worth not interrupting you for <laughs> this time. I admit it at this time but well next time I'll be right anyway um, <laughs> that's that's really like I was gonna make a point which is kind of related to that because you know I'm thinking of Foucault's history of sexuality and how he's talking about um, from my not imperfect memory of it how creating language for things is a form of controlling them and science the scientific study of sexuality as a way of controlling sexuality. And definitely in this time, it's when we first see scientists trying to describe and study sexuality as a way of normalizing things yeah. that were previously stigmatized. So this is part of, the, it becomes this war that previously did not exist. Um, and and one of the things that I found, which I thought was really fascinating, was that in in France, homosexuality was legalized around the time of the French Revolution by the revolutionaries. And that's part of the reason that France is France and, you know, and Paris is cool. And there's this entire louche nightlife. But obviously, it's still like highly stigmatized. And it's the you know, it's the love of the night, not the love of the day. Whereas in Germany, it was made officially illegal in 18, in the 1870s. And then there there ensued a long war between sexual scientists who became very active in Germany and the government, which was implacably against homosexuality and so and, and it, they never got rid of that law. I thought well, they eventually did, but they didn't get rid of it until after Nazism. So there so we think of the Weimar Republic as being a particularly freewheeling place, but it actually like, it just was a place where they were not enforcing the extremely draconian laws against homosexuality Um, but they still existed
0: yeah i think there's there's kind of the two layers one is the law and the other is the practice of i mean i guess this is why the word is homophobia that like extreme Mm. fear of intimacy or like i mean men fully dressing like slobs lest one of them look at another one and feel pleasure you know I think that yeah. that level of fear of homosexuality was not part of the picture that um that Juna Barnes was writing about
1: oh this is coming back to our thing about clowns in the circus actually it is, it is. <laughs> so there are only yeah, two possible also. responses. Yeah, either you deprive the clowns in the circus and and gayness of all of its fear and all of its strangeness and all of its nighttime quality and make it a thing of the day and a thing that's ordinary and boring. Or you have to be so afraid of it that you can't have it anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and it. I mean, I think that the, the reason, uh, I think it was in this Chauncey book that... Um, that the Nazis were, or the fascists in general, if you include, like, McCarthyism and everything, um, were so, so upset about homosexuality is that it is this alternate hierarchy. It Mm. is sort of an escape hatch in the power structure. Um, And that's absolutely how Juna Barnes is encountering it because, you know, Felix is so, so interested in aristocracy and the glorious past, and then uh, Nora, the Juna Barnes-Stanton character, she... um, she's a uh what is she sh- she does pr for the circus where all <laughs> of the right. performers have these um sort of faux aristocratic names and they're like covered in tattoos because the the guy was covered in tattoos because he wants beauty with him all the time and uh, just that idea that you could have pleasure in your body and also kind of be mimicking and making a fool of the whole aristocratic order that's why they were so upset about homosexuality in the first place, and that's the thing that that's like the joy of this book. Even though the book is so 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 sad, in terms of just um, it's really showing the uniqueness of the love between Nora and Robin. Only in Nora's heartbreak after Robin moves on. Like yes, the yes. Yeah. Th- their whole courtship, their whole like you know years together, their housekeeping. It's like Robin had a doll. Robin left and then the whole rest of the book is just like Nora is too sad to function.
1: Yeah, we never but see any of the good part of their relationship at all.
0: Yeah, except those like descriptions of Robin's hands that really make you think <laughs> um somebody has planned for those hands and it's yeah. not <laughs> just all about genetics. <laughs> um but it's not I mean it, the, the idea that there's pleasure in the nighttime, is much more in an implication. And there's a lot more heartbreak in the nighttime.
1: Yeah I've, yeah, I've just got a quote here. This is another doctor quote, which has to do with eugenics and nighttime and heartbreak, which is, I tell you, madame, if one gave birth to a heart on a plate, it would say love and twitch like the lopped leg of a frog, <laughs> which is, a, you know, it's the perfect kind of, kind of childbearing for this novel. It really is it also seems like
0: like maybe it's the one horror movie that the eighties forgot to make <laughs> like that i mean it's I think this is a book about kind of the horrifyingness of of love if there is actual pleasure in love um as opposed to just this kind of mechanical marriage plus babies equals death um, it is so like
1: there is a thing about. Writing about love in this time is so completely hopeless. You read through the entirety of In Search of Lost Time, and there's absolutely no image of romantic love where there is a happy ending for anyone or the possibility of a happy ending or of a a moment's peace.
0: All right, that's 1936 in New York and Paris. That's our first episode on Nightwood. Thank you so much for joining us here at Lit Century. Next week, we'll continue our discussion of Juna Barnes and her place in modernism, as well as a few of Sandra's best discoveries about the real-life people Barnes' characters were based on. One person opened an antique store in a sort of shocking way. So uh, come back next week if you want to be shocked by uh, antiques. Until then, if you'd like to write to us, send an email to litcenturypodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or tweet us at litcenturypodcast because we'd love to hear from you. We'd also like to thank Adam Baer for our podcast music. We'll be back next week with more discussion of Nightwood and the week after we'll be talking about Nella Larson's passing from 1929. So goodbye till then.